is Andrew Blumenfeld, and you're listening to the Money in Politics podcast. We are now officially on the other side of the 2020 election cycle, and there is lots to talk about. However, since you're probably not in short supply of hot takes and post-election analysis, I thought we'd bring you something a little bit different. So rather than rewind just a few weeks to the close of the general election on November 3rd, today we're actually going to go back in time even further to the year of Democratic primaries that produced our general election candidates this cycle. On that topic, I'm speaking with Richard Deshay Elliott. He's a PhD fellow at Johns Hopkins University and the election analyst at PrimaryCast. PrimaryCast is a project that evaluates Democratic primary candidates and campaigns, looks at historic trends and current election cycle data, and it uses all of that to make predictions about the vote share, the competitiveness, and ultimately the outcome of Democratic primaries. And they do this in every House, Senate, and gubernatorial race in the country, and they are looking soon to expand even beyond that. So Richard is here to tell us about that project, including what that data and his research suggests about the role of fundraising and spending in Democratic primaries, and what that might mean for those looking at 2021 races, 2022 campaigns, and even beyond. But first, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. I'm here now with Richard Deshay Elliott. Richard, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me on. Happy to be here. I'm excited to chat with you about Primary Cast, but before we do, could you start by just telling me a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to work on this project? Sure. So my name is Richard Deshay Elliott. I graduated from Prince George's County Public Schools. I went to Uni- University of Maryland, Baltimore County for undergrad, getting a major in American Studies, minors in Political Science and History. I was accepted into Johns Hopkins University for grad school. I recently completed my master's degree in political science, concentrating in uh, American politics. So how I came to work on this model is I was given a bunch of data by a fundraising firm called Grassroots Analytics. With that data, I was able to build out a model by inputting it on Stata. And we have the vote share information from the past four primaries, along with fundraising and other other district-related information. And using this model, we built out a predictive, predictive model, predictive map, of every single congressional, Senate, and gubernatorial primary, Democratic primary in the entire country that is more accurate than most polling, at least as far as I've uh, studied on our model versus other polls. And so you're, you sort of just began to give the answer here, but just tell our listeners a little bit more about the, the primary cast project itself. It, as you just said, is looking at making predictions about vote share for Democratic candidates in Democratic primaries, in the House, in uh, Senate, in gubernatorial contests. But tell us a little bit more, like, what what is the purpose of this? Is it meant to just be a backwards-looking project? Is it meant to be a way of projecting future, you know, starting in 2022? Should people start looking at this as a tool for making predictions about what they should expect in terms of Democratic primary outcomes? Just tell us a little bit more about kind of what it is, what its scope, and what its purpose. 
Those are a good round of questions. I'll start by comparing it with what a lot of people who are watching this might know about, which are like 538 or real clear polling averages, which make their assessment based on polling averages that have been done in the district, usually on phone respondents, opinion polls. The difference between primary cast and let's say a 538 or real clear polling average is that ours is based upon 40 or so different variables, including demographic data, including campaign fundraising, including name recognition, including the cost of the media market, and many other factors, which let us predict the final vote share in the district, along with the winning likelihood for any given candidate. This model has, I believe, much better accuracy than a standard polling, because this is not about opinions, this is based on the empirical data from the last several primaries. And so some of the takeaways that we've had are, number one, fundraising is almost certainly the most predictive factor in any candidate's ability to win in the Democratic primary. Number two, in recent elections, the vote share for women and for black candidates, particularly for women, I believe, of the deep red, more rural areas, such as the northern Texas panhandle, for black candidates, particularly when there's one black candidate against multiple non-black candidates in a majority black race, is very, very effective for vote share. And organizational support has become more and more important as well. So Marquita Bradshaw, who had an upset victory in the Tennessee Senate race, in our model, she has an A for organizational support. I believe the Sunrise Movement, the uh, DSA, our revolution groups in that area, they all supported Marquita. And that organizational support helped put her over the edge against a candidate who out-fundraised her, I believe it was about 30 to 1, if not more than that. Or for demographic advantage, Jamal Bowman in his district, Jamal Bowman had an A, whereas Elliot Engel, I believe, was a D demographic match. And Jamal Bowman actually outperformed our model and was able to win that primary. So this, none of this is to say that our model is 100% effective, but it is the best tracker to, to gauge Democratic vote share in the primaries by far. And it sounds like from what you were saying that there's actually a few different components to it. So yes, the end goal is to predict vote share and, you know, likely outcome. But, but you mentioned a few things in there that I'd love to hear more about, which is their demographics. I think you said like how their demographic score, what their organizational score is. Can you talk a little bit more about those ratings, which I assume are sort of a way of telling people about the kinds of things your model is looking at and where people are ranking on those different things. And that just gives some insight as to why the model may predict one outcome versus the other. Sure. So the model, the case that I'm going to give you is actually one where we were very wrong. And I'll explain why we were very wrong. In Virginia's 5th Congressional District, Bryant Webb, he was predicted to win in our model with 50%. He was an A demographic match, A fundraising, B organizational support, and C for name recognition. But he got about double the vote share that we expected, in large part because he had a late June primary amid Black Lives Matter protests around the country, where in that on that primary day, there were several other candidates who massively outperformed their expectations. So while our model does account for fundraising, for demographics, for organizational support, it can't quite take into account the varying political situation in the country. But the positive news is that even in the cases where we are wrong, which is few in the total in the totality of the model, even where we're wrong, we can take the data from this election 
input it for the next election, and it'll help with our accuracy and our consistency nationwide. Yeah, and it's an interesting, I mean, having those components, being able to see that he scored such and such on fundraising, such and such on, on name recognition, is also has utility in and of itself. Because as you point out, even in this situation, someone who is looking at this model and trying to, you know, glean something from it, they may say, you know what, I think I don't agree with the vote share that the, that the model is predicting because the model doesn't account for Black Lives Matter, for instance, which is happening around the country right now in this late primary. But nevertheless, I can kind of you factor that in myself and look at these scores that the that primary cast has assigned on demographics, on fundraising. And that can be quite informative as well. And And it actually, it leads me to uh, something I was going to ask you about a little bit later, but while we're talking about it, I'll, I'll ask you now, which is, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who believe kind of conventional wisdom in politics that a lot of these issue-based things, they don't actually have that big of an impact. And so I think your model kind of lives in those presumptions because, you know, it says, hey, there are these fundamental things about a race, whether or not someone has enough money, whether or not someone has name recognition, whether or not someone has organizational support, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of the whims, you know, not to minimize them, but the the like, oh, well, right now what people are really excited about is the fact that our state legislature just made a decision about rent control and now that's all people can talk about or whatever that thing may be, that those things actually tend to have less of an impact than on these fundamental pieces. I know there's certainly people who disagree with that as a matter of principle, but it seems to me no matter what you believe on that spectrum, whether you think those things, those kind of issues of the day matter a lot or matter a little or matter or not at all, you almost have to admit that they seem to matter more and more, at least lately, you know, that there have been things that have happened, whether they're just the, the fact that the the coronavirus, Black Lives Matter, I mean, you kind of can point to a bunch of things that I think are really ground shifting events that, you know, frankly, a lot of people would not have been able to predict, you know, months before they happened, sometimes even weeks before they happened. So this is a long wind up way of me asking you the question of, do you think the model, like, what else do you think in your dream world, should the model be accounting for? Is it okay that it's not accounting for these sort of opinion polls about issues of the day? Or are there ways for the model to account for that? Or is that just always going to be the limitation of a model like this? Uh, so if the question of my dream additions, I like that question. I think that based upon where the vote swung wildly, let's say for the Bryant-Webb race again, I would imagine that through early vote, a lot of that vote might have swayed in the way our model predicted with him still winning, but which is by a smaller margin. But that's to say that we could find the districts where there was a large swing in a certain area and apply, you know, an ideological score within the districts or an ideological flexibility where it could sway more heavily under certain circumstances. I would love to add in for mayoral contests in the biggest 25 or 50 cities in the United States. I would like to add in for attorney general's races, if that'd be possible. I think for the presidential race in 2024, on both the Democratic and Republican side, that would be very, very informative and very well uh, and very well followed out of just general intrigue. Uh, and I think that for as long as this model continues, we are going to want to add more data on the voters, on the candidates, on the organizations, on the fundraising and the expenditures and on just how campaigns are run. I think that we could, in the future, have a specific rating of what was the biggest expenditure, whether you were TV or field uh, ground and field game or 
you know, what, what have you. So th this is not to say this model is complete, but the model, even in this state of infancy, already has stunning accuracy. And I think that speaks greatly to the quality of the data that was provided and that will continue to be input. Yeah, and it certainly does lend credence to the viewpoint that I was articulating a moment ago, which is people who believe there are just fundamental facts about campaigns and the way they and the way the you know who the candidate is, how the campaign is run, the uh, it kind of fundamental factors of the district or jurisdiction they're running in, and that those things are you know data points that can be collected. I, it's interesting to hear you say that one of the things and sort of a wish of the future are the inputs of this model being even more driven by like what kinds of expenditures does someone make, what kinds of fundraising. And because, of course, this is the Money in Politics podcast, let's actually spend a few more minutes talking specifically about the finance side of things. You mentioned that fundraising was, I think you said, a very, very big influence on who ultimately won the Democratic primary. Can you say a little bit more about that and anything else you learned about the impact of fundraising and maybe also the impact of spending that your model sure. uh, points to? So fundraising is worth roughly 50% of the weight within our formula to create the model. It's roughly with about half of that, of that. But keep in mind that fundraising also affects name recognition. Name recognition within our model is generated by the cost of the media market versus the amount of money that has been expended in the past within that media market, be it on literature, on mail, on commercials, on radio ads. And then for organizational support, organizations generally tend to support candidates who have more money and are seen as more likely to win candidates. So fundraising is goes beyond simply, I can buy this, but to I can be taken seriously as a candidate, I can start to grow my operation from simply passing out literature to fundraising to be able to pay for new literature. Fundraising is essential. And for anybody who would want to look at the primary cast data, I think the primary way that it's beneficial is by looking at candidates that are like you in both personality, background, policy, looking at their districts, uh, particularly if they're similar to your district, seeing how much money they raised and how that affected their vote share and their winning ability. And of course, if any campaign were to reach out and add, or campaign or organization were to reach out and ask a question on that matter. We would be happy to provide them with the data showing them how our model predicts as it does. That's great. That's wonderful. And I am curious about any thoughts you have on the way, the reason why fundraising is such a big factor in the primary, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe less of a factor in the general is, well, actually, let me just ask the question then first. Is that correct? Does it seem to you from your research that the primary, I mean, that's a huge whopping figure, right? 50%. And then to your point, it influences and infiltrates all these other factors. That is really quite significant. Do you see the same kind of effect on general elections? I'm, what I'm going to give is my opinion. I'm not going to say this is necessarily the opinion of the primary cast model. In my opinion, in the primary, quite a few Democrats are what I say non-ideological. They are not necessarily voting on a policy or have a consistent policy stand. These voters often will end up voting for the person who does the most consistent outreach, has the higher name recognition, has had people to go and knock the door or to send the multiple mailers. And as a result, our model, we've, we have the assumption now that for the majority 
of Democratic voters in the country. They will vote for, you know, a new Democrat, a Clinton Democrat, or they'll vote for a DSA candidate. It's mostly about the messaging and the consistency of the outreach. But it is my opinion that within the general election, fundraising is less of a factor than sort of the national mood. In this general election, Democrats raised record amounts of money, but due in part to a late swing uh, to Republicans, several you know swing district Democrats have lost their seats in spite of the large amounts of fundraising. So I, in my opinion, I believe fundraising is more paramount within the primary election and in the general election, sort of the national mood, how the president is their approval rating is going to be the bigger impact. And does your model account, I know one of the things that your model concludes about a race is how competitive it is. And obviously, you know, and we've talked about this on this podcast a lot in the past, the relationship between fundraising and competitiveness is, you know, almost one to one, right? If people are, if there's multiple campaigns in a single race that are raising serious funds that, you know, you can create a serious competition. And if you only have one or none that are doing that, it's less likely to be the case. I'm curious then, does your model account for when thinking about the impact of fundraising? How do you deal with, I guess is what I'm asking, how do you deal with the fact that there is such wide variation in the kinds of races that happen in primaries? And for a little bit of context for our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with this is, you know, some huge sum of races are very non-competitive because you've just got an incumbent who's running and is definitely going to win their, you know, certainly win renomination and likely win re-election. And during the primary period, nevertheless, sometimes they'll raise record sums of money because they're just raising money to build their kind of war chest. And they're an easy donation for a lot of donors to make because it's in, they know that person's going to win. They're not going anywhere anyone anytime soon. So they're happy to make a contribution and, you know, sort of stay in their good graces. And so you sometimes you'll see in races, wow, this was totally non-competitive competitive and someone raised a lot of money. And then I'll say on the total other end of the spectrum, same thing, but the inverse, right? You'll have an incumbent who has no challenger of any kind, no real competition to, to be to be seen. And so they raise almost no money. And frankly, even if their challenger raises some amount of money, it's, it's, it's not nearly enough to overcome the weight of their incumbency. That's a lot of context just to ask, again, the question of how do you account for that kind of variation so that your model is truly sizing up like is this a competitive race or is this just a race where either a lot or a little amount of money is being raised because of the dynamics of who's in it okay so i'm going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum from what you're saying uh rather than situations where there's a very strong incumbent who has lots of money there are also the exact opposite for instance the northern texas panhandle where it is a deep red area i believe it's r plus 30 or so And as a result, the Democratic primary is extremely small. It's composed primarily of women. It's it's more, it's heavily Latino as compared to the district itself. And in districts like that, money is not necessarily as important of a factor. There are several of these districts that are marked as competitive, although both of the candidates were Fs in fundraising. Uh, South Carolina's, I believe, third congressional district is on that list. Indiana's fourth congressional district. So we've added in, we call it a variance a variable so that there's a, you know, a swing because it's such a small primary. Some of these have less than 30,000 or 40,000 primary voters. A lot of them, organizational support, I believe, takes a bigger factor simply because there's not really a Democratic Party infrastructure. So there are the models of 
places with a strong incumbent who raises lots of money. You could say a Nancy Pelosi as the archetype. You could say a, a, a incumbent who's popular but doesn't raise very much money. Kwaizi uh, Fume in Maryland would be an, an example of that. And then there's also incumbents who are weak, and as a result, they raise lots of money. Lacey Clay earlier this year was an example. And then finally, there's weak incumbents who are so weak that they are unable to really raise any money. I'm not going to say anybody on that. But there, this model covers rural, suburban, and urban deep incumbent versus never had a Democrat, progressive districts, and conservative districts. And even keeping all of these variables that, that change so much in different corners of the country, we still maintain a very strong record of predictability on both winning likelihood and vote share. And I think that that just adds to the impressiveness in this infant stage of the primary gas model. It definitely does. And it also, it builds a lot of confidence in the fact that those kinds of variables are being conceived of and accounted for in the model. Because I think that is, it's not surprising for me to hear that the model is so accurate after hearing you talk about all the different things that it accounts for, because I'm a data guy. So I am of the mind that the more you're accounting for, obviously, the more uh, predictive the outcome. So a couple more questions about finance. We've been talking about fundraising piece of it, really interesting. And you mentioned, you know, a hoped for future where even more can be taken into account under that umbrella. Is anything currently accounted for in the realm of spending and expenses, or is that a future inclusion? Present, the main way that is included is by, I think, a, a formula of amount of media expenditures, radio, mail, TV ads, all the other different ways that, that incumbents spend to raise their name recognition divided by the cost of the media market. So a candidate that, and that affects uh, the fundraising as well. And a candidate who's running, for instance, in the New York or the Philadelphia media market, their media market is several times more expensive than somebody, for instance, in Columbia, South Carolina, or in Northern Florida. And as a result, this, even though those amounts change wildly, because we have the filler to account for the cost of the media market, it helps to make our fundraising predictive ability for the grade even stronger. Do you count for it all, or is there a way to think about what kind of earned media a person either has or could get? I know for down-ballot races, especially as media consolidation you know, in, continues to persist, just becomes, it becomes really tough for anyone, you know, of, uh, I always hear campaigns say, and I, and I totally get it and believe it and have experienced it myself, pretty much any time a, a voter hears about my candidate or about me, it's because we paid for that to be the case, right? I mean, there's just so little free coverage, but obviously that's not ex- true uh, universally. There are people who have very strong sort of online presences, some people who have taken to cable news, and and obviously other people who are just really workhorses in their district, and so they're getting picked up for local coverage for the actual work that they're doing on the ground. Any accounting for that or any thoughts about how you might account for that? Yeah, that, that's a great idea. And I think one one way to start to account for that could be the number of Google News hits over the course of the year on any particular candidate. So for instance, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who performed very, very well in her race and had you know very strong ratings, obviously won by a large margin. I think that if you add in the you know several thousand Google News hits within the uh, name recognition department, that's a very, very useful variable. How you could account for it using social media, 
and other, I'm going to say non, non-statistical or not, or ones that are harder to track, it'd be a bit more difficult. Uh, but, you know, roughly imagining for social media that you could take the amount of money that people are spending on their social media ad campaigns, as was has been talked about widely uh, in the past week or so, national Democrats, many of them underspend on digital ads. Connor Lamb, for instance, spent only $1,000 on Facebook in the week leading up to the election. If you can look at the, there's a wide difference between individuals who are spending maybe $1,000 on Facebook in a month or in a week versus people who've spent over $100,000 on it over the course of the cycle, because that also has a very strong impact on uh, name recognition. So there's certainly, yeah, as, as, as campaigns are changing and the statistics we can use to measure how they're spending their money change, that's another way that we can add those, those factors to the model. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think even on that front, I could imagine, you know, this is some unsolicited advice as you continue to grow this model. <laughs> it's worth that, money, I'm listening. <laughs> that that the I'm always a little skeptical is not the right word, but I'm always a, I always like to probe a little bit further when someone is looking exclusively at how much money someone spent online as opposed to how much of that money was spent on fundraising outside of the district versus how much was spent on actual voter, you know, uh, touching inside of the district, because you'll definitely see some people where, wow, they, you know, they raised a million dollars. What an, what an exorbitant sum they raised and, and, and they'll be applauded for that because it's largely small dollar donors and that's wonderful. But then you'll see they spent $800,000 on, on ads, you know, 12 months before their next election on out, mostly out of district, out of state, because they're obviously national ad campaigns with the purpose of being able to solicit those smaller contributions. So certainly a net positive, it's not like they lost money on the deal, although certainly plenty of people do, but it's not necessarily the home run that, that you might have thought financially. And then per actual outcomes of result of the election, you know, you, you can't necessarily count on every one of those dollars translating into a motivated voter because a huge percentage of them are not even voters in the district, right? Absolutely. I think that within the model already, I believe that it accounts for in-district fundraising. We've seen across the cycle, particularly with the Senate candidates in Kentucky and uh, and some of the other places around the country where they've been recruited by the DSCC, that they were able to fundraise enormous sums of money. I believe about $315 million was raised and spent by these Senate candidates. But the majority of this money was raised outside of the states that they were in. A lot of it was in big donations from people who donate to lots of people every cycle. They're not new donors. They're not district donors. They're not voters in that area. But that as compared to, you know, $100 versus... 10 $1 donations is a very, very big difference on impact within the race. There's also now areas such as New York City and Montgomery County, Maryland, and Howard County, Maryland, where there's public financing of elections. So raising money in district also has a multiplier effect in the total amount you're able to raise. So even as much as one may acknowledge campaign fundraising is important, the amount that you raise relative to the amount you spend chasing the check is imperative to understand for a good versus a well-financed campaign. And I think that ratio is maybe one of the most important of any candidate. 
Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And so I, I think if I'm a candidate listening to this conversation right now, or if I am, you know, a campaign finance staffer listening to this right now, a couple big takeaways I'm getting. Tell me if you agree or if I'm missing any really big I'll give ones. A thumbs up, thumbs down. You can do a bunch of them. I'll give thumbs up, <laughs> thumbs down. That's great. Well, for our listeners, they won't be able to see you, so I'll just pretend oh. you're thumbs upping everything I say. How about that? <laughs> no, no, no. But let's let's. I'll, I only have a couple because I think they really are some standout ones. And of course, because I'm biased, I look through through these things. I look at these things through the lens of money and politics, right? But if I'm a Democrat thinking about running for office in a primary or in a primary right now, I have to be laser focused on fundraising. Is that fair to say? Thumbs up at least to start. For a congressional race, because of the extreme expense, because of the ever-evolving political uh, situation in the country, and the also there's about to be redistricting. For anybody who would be considering a run for office in 2021 or 2022, I would say at this point, you should be laser focused on fundraising, hiring fundraising within your campaign committee. And I would say, honestly, hiring a campaign manager with a focus on fundraising and outreach within the district. Door knocking and field campaign can be built later on. Fundraising increases exponentially field increases linearly, if that distinction makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say then kind of as a as a second piece to that is I'm hearing also that being really thoughtful about raising dollars, especially early on that are, I'll call them high margin dollars is important, that it's probably not thoughtful early on to be trying to pick up a bunch of small dollars that where to your point, you're spending a lot of cheap money chasing that check, you want to be, you know, talking to individual people who can not only make a contribution, but maybe can also vote for you. And if not vote for you, you know, help, you know, help later down the line, find new donors, find new voters. So, you know, we're not necessarily, I guess, what part part of the picture I'm painting is maybe a counter image to what I think maybe some people have, because they see it on Twitter, and they see it on the news, which is a little bit of, uh, of the kind of small dollar celebrity, right, the someone who is able to just all of a sudden explode and raise tons of small dollars. Well, we now see coming out of 2020, if we needed new evidence, that that does not guarantee a win by any means. But it also is not something that's so easily replicable, especially not early in a cycle. Uh, would not you agree? In partic- and particularly for newer candidates, that's very difficult. I think that if you're starting off now for a congressional race for 2022, your best bet would probably be to look for people in your area and people who are connected with you ideally who have donated the max, or if not the max, at least, you know, $100 in the Georgia Senate races. These Georgia Senate races are going to be a marquee of both Democratic ability to excite voters after the presidential election, but there will also be, I'm going to estimate, at least $100 million that are going to be spent between the two parties. And it could be in excess of $200 million, considering that it's going to be for the balance of the United States Senate. So your, your goal to start should be to try and get the money that is not interested in any races because the races are distant, trying to get as much of the big money as you can. And then as it gets closer to the primary date to wind it down and focus on the small dollar districts in and around your uh, small dollar donors in your district, get their support because you're not going to be asking them just for the dollar. But at that point, you'll be getting closer to the vote. But if you have your $50,000 a year in advance, that gives you $25,000 to invest in further fundraising and $25,000 to invest in field. 
the money that you invest in field up front, you have to go back on later because, again, these congressional districts are so enormous that there's no real possible way as a new candidate, I believe, of maintaining the name recognition from the start of the race unless you focus hard on the fundraising and then build a very strong field operation from six to eight months out. Fantastic. couple last questions uh, going a little bit broader than uh, fundraising. One is just I'm curious about what the any takeaways you have if primary cast is looking at what, if any, conclusions we can draw about the likelihood of someone winning the general election once they have successfully won the primary based on the way they won the primary. Is there any way we can look at someone's primary outcome and go, that tells me they are this likely to win or lose their general election. Is that within the scope of primary cast or within the scope of research you've done? I wouldn't say it's within the scope of primary cast, but I'll give you, I'll call it an informal way that you could try and gauge it right now. You can look right now at all the districts in the country that have an R plus rating where they are, where they lean at least as Republican as the nation, if not more so. There's not particularly many Democrats. It's probably less than 20 or 30 who are in R-plus districts. But within those R-plus districts, anybody who underperformed their primary cast expectation, I believe it is quite likely that they lost the general election. Granted, this year is not exactly the best case. There were a lot of primaries that were canceled this year. In the state of Virginia, uh, in the state of South Carolina, and a few other states, the primary elections were pretty much outright canceled. And thus, the data needs to be updated and have more years, maybe going back more than four election cycles or focusing on whatever data we can scrape up next year to improve the data. Last question, then, is where can like what's the future of this project? You mentioned before people can um, reach out campaigns, organizations to kind of get even further insight about about different districts or predictions based upon what the model is looking at. Just for those listening, what should they be on the lookout for and how can they stay in touch with you and primary cast? Okay, so if anybody wants to stay in touch, number one, go to primarycast.us and you can sign up with your email there to receive updates as new data is input into the system. Number two, you can email me, richard at primarycast.us. This is also on the website. And you can ask any question. If you have a question on, for instance, why is this prediction wrong? How did you get this prediction so correct? What do you think made a sway in a certain district to impact the vote? Why did this person have an A in fundraising when they raised $100,000, when this person who raised $125,000 had an F? Any of those questions can be happily answered at the email. And then beyond that, stay tuned because we will certainly be adding in the data from the general election to help make our model more accurate. We're going to be using data of the 2021 and 2022 races. And I would like to add in, for instance, the mayoral Secretary of State, Attorney General, Presidential, uh, and more different kinds of races because people, while this model is novel in the terms of this is the only primary prediction model that we know of for every race in the country for Democrats, it also could be perhaps the one that can help people to understand how there's a vote shift between supporting a progressive candidate for Congress and a moderate candidate for president or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. 
Remind folks, before I let you go, what was your success rate on predictions using primary cast in Democratic primaries for the 2020 cycle? I don't have the number perfectly offhand, but I believe that number is above 75% of the races are within several points. The number of races that are incorrect is very low. And mind you, most of the races where we were incorrect were either very, very small turnout, very, very Republican, or races where there was basically a last minute wave change among policy changes or po- political uh, consciousness changes in the country. But if, if anybody would like to contest primary cast predictive ability versus any other model, we'd love to see a comparison. Yeah, I love that. Terrific. Well, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. This is definitely kind of right up my alley in terms of the the things I get most uh, nerdy about. So thanks so much for indulging me and for sharing all of the work that you've done with our audience. And thank you for doing all of this work. I obviously understand it is no small lift and it is to a lot of Democrats benefits. So thanks so much for being here. And I'm, I, I hope our listeners will will follow the work that you do and stay in touch. Uh, data wins campaigns. You have a great day. That's right. You too. Take care. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai and follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI. <laughs>